So one of the things I've noticed being a pastor around the U.S. in different states, uh, California and South Carolina, those are very different states, and here in Utah, is the one thing I've noticed, a shared experience, if you will, is there's really a lot of misunderstanding about the teaching of baptism. And specifically, what I mean is that people view baptism as something that only mature Christians do who have their doctrine down, as it were. So people get, get baptized, and once they prove themselves, basically, to be a serious Christian. Like, this is kind of like, you get baptized when this is kind of your, your Christian final form. This is my final form kind of thing. So, yeah, that's when people think they need to get baptized. And I've seen this happen where, where, where people will take anywhere from a year to up to 15 years to get baptized. It's incredible. And I, I've heard people say things like this, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't know which denomination is correct. Like, those are all made up anyways. It's not in the original you know, documents of the Bible, or, you know, I, I don't know what view of church government is right, or what, how is the ordering of the second coming going to occur. I, you know, Nate, I still struggle a lot with sin and all that. I'm trying to figure things out. So I'm not prepared to go up in front of everyone and profess my faith in Christ and, you know, get dunked or sprinkled, whatever you do, you know, whatever people do. And, and I know this thinking runs and it's so deep in the American uh, church, in the church here in the U.S., because, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I've seen people take communion at various churches for 5, 10, 15 years, and yet they'll put off baptism for years and years. And, of course, you know, taking communion is, I mean, the simple requirement is you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. But, you see, baptism, biblically, is the entrance right into the Christian church. And for this reason, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the order, that the cart is before the horses, they would say, that you have to kind of prove yourself, establish yourself as this super spiritual Christian in order to get baptized. I'll give you an example of this, a real example. I have a friend, he's in a different state, he has a daughter, he has a lot of kids, but he has a daughter, and I think she's a teenager at this point. She knows the Bible incredibly well. She loves Jesus. She believes in the gospel. She believes in salvation through grace and faith alone. She's a Christian. She loves and follows Jesus, but my, this, this guy told me he would not baptize her out of fear of a false conversion. That, you know, she's worried that he's just, she's simply just repeating the words that he's saying as the parent and everything. And so what this gentleman thinks is that she has to kind of prove herself to be baptized. Prove that she's a genuine, authentic believer in order to get baptized. You know, in evangelicalism, we have this thing where people go through like a crisis phase. Maybe the 16, you know, they, they uh, break into a car or they, uh, they crack a window. You know, they, they, they do drugs or whatever. They, they party and they have this rebellious 16, you know, or maybe it's 18, I don't know. And you go through this tough time and you end up still a, you're like, that was wrong. I was wrong to do that. Now I'm a Christian. Now that I've shown myself after my past life of sin that I'm really on fire for Christ. And now it's time for me to get baptized. Now that I've, you know, forsaken all of that and I've proven myself to be a really super strong spiritual Christian, now it's time for me to get baptized. That's how we view that baptism in the, in the Christian church many times. That someone has to go through like some crisis event and then prove themselves that, okay, finally I can get baptized now. I, um, and it's, I've seen churches. I was a part of a church in my 20s. 
And this is incredible. This church required like people memorize like catechisms and theology and agree with all of this stuff. People would take years and years before they can get baptized because they had to have all the theology down and say it in the right way and you'd get a profession of faith baptism done for you. It was incredible. And I had a friend at the time who I supported him through this, went through a cross-examination process with the elders. So the elders are cross-examining this guy for an hour. This poor kid's in tears because he has to prove himself. Like, oh, I got all my theology figured out, so now I can get baptized. And what we're going to find is that in our verse-by-verse study of Romans chapter 6, that is not the way the church viewed baptism in the first century. Uh, something that you have to kind of prove yourself as we made up in the North American church. That is not the understanding of baptism that Paul had or anybody in the New Testament. So as we look through our verse-by-verse verse study of Romans 6, this will become abundantly evident. Romans 6, 1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And what Paul says here is if we continue sinning, thinking that we continue to sin, that God's going to give us more grace and forgive us. He's like, well, how can you who've died in to sin, how can you still live in sin, practicing sin? So who is Paul talking to? Is he talking to atheists and unbelievers? Is he talking to believers? Well, Paul is talking to believers, and we know that because he is reminding them what Jesus has done for them, and that they've died to sin through Christ, and that they're not to live in sin because of what Jesus has done by his grace for them. So yeah, Paul in this context is talking to those who trust and believe and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's his target audience. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians here, and that Christians are to realize the grace of Jesus and how amazing it is, but that that grace is not a license the sin. Rather, that grace is to transform you as a follower of Jesus and that we are thankful for what Jesus did. So we don't want to be comfortable living in our sin because his grace is so amazing and abundant. But what's amazing is that he assumes here that every person that, that he's talking to, a Christian, he, he just makes the assumption. He doesn't have to qualify because he knows every person in that church, he assumes it really, has been baptized. Look at verses uh, 3 and 4. He says, do you not know that all of, all of us, some of us, a few of us, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were, there, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So yeah, the, the first century church, Paul assumes the Roman Christians, he assumes in the Church of Rome, without qualification, if you believed in Jesus, you said you were a Christian, you'd already been baptized. It had already happened at that point. Now what's remarkable, remarkable here is Paul doesn't say, okay, for you super amazing, theologically attuned, you know, special super Christians, you know, Hulk mighty Superman Christians, now okay, you guys are going to get baptized, you know, kind of thing. No, it's not saying that. The qualification for baptism is you have to first recognize you're a sinner in need of salvation, trusting in Jesus to forgive you from all of that sin, so that you trust in Jesus to be the, your Lord and Savior, to give you eternal life, and, and to, to believe in Him that's how you have salvation. It's so simple, 
that even a child can believe that in this simple gospel message and be baptized. You know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's so simple that even a child can understand that. You don't need to figure out everything. Romans 14 says, you know, these, all these baptized Christians, they were still arguing about, like, is it a Sabbath day on Sunday? What's going on? Are people, you know, meat or not meat, vegan or whatever, you know? So they're, 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 still, they're still having debates. They, don't, they haven't gotten all figured out. Yet Paul assumes categorically they've all been baptized. He assumes it here. He's, and, you know, he assumes it throughout all these other epistles. If you look at Corinthians, you can tell. He assumes all those people are baptized. And if you ever feel bad about your Christian life, you're like, man, I'm really not adding up here. You know, I'm, I'm, you know I get mad at my, my kids and my wife or my husband and I get mad on the road and I get really impatient with people. If you ever just like feel bad about yourself, read, read through 1 Corinthians. It'll make you feel so much better about yourself. Because those people are really big train wrecks. I mean, guys messing around with his mother, mother-in-law. I mean, golly, what a mess that is. People are denying the resurrection. I, oof, it is. They're arguing about, like, I got baptized by that guy. Did you get baptized by that guy? I mean, they're arguing about everything in Corinthians. And yet Paul assumes they've all been baptized. And these people are immature Christian train wrecks. And yet he still assumes They've all been baptized. Even in the letter of 1 Corinthians, they're denying the resurrection, which is an, you know, an historic part of the Christian faith. It's incredible. So I don't mean to feel good about yourself in a self-righteous way. I'm not saying that. But, you know, sometimes you need to kind of lift me up a bit, you know? And you might think, okay, so what's kind of the importance of baptism then? Like, does it actually, like, save you? Why even get baptized in the first place? Well, my wedding ring here doesn't make me married, but I still wear it because it shows my love and my commitment to my wife. But what's interesting is that some people have read the text we were looking at this morning. They've actually viewed them as saying that baptism saves you. Now I want to look at Romans 2 through 4 again. And imagine like how even an honest person could come to this conclusion. Read Romans 6. I'm going to read it. And just imagine if you thought that baptism saved you, how that would confirm that belief. Verse 3. Do you know, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there, in very literal fashion, you can see how a, a reasonable person might take it to say you are buried with Christ in baptism. That means that you are saved through baptism. It says it there. Directly. So a person can pull up First uh, Peter three twenty one. Look at this one. They say, "Hey Nate, look at First Peter three twenty one. Look what it says. It says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Look at that, Nate. It says baptism saves you. Now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're like Nate. You know, it just it just very straightforwardly says that. Are you are you, do you believe in the Bible, Nate? Don't you take God at His word when it says baptism saves you? I mean, it just says it black and white, point blank, right there, Nate. 
Well, what I want to do first in response to this is in our modern day world, we use representational language all the time and don't intend it to be taken as literal. And what I'm going to show is, you know, the Bible uses kind of sacramental language of signs and symbols. It's called representational or sacramental language in Scripture. And that means you can speak of the symbol as if it's a thing it's pointing to. So, for instance, my, my, my wedding ring... Uh, points to my commitment and my love for my wife. But you can say, I can say before all of you, you know what? This is, this is my commitment and my love for my wife. I can, I can point to it because a symbol is being spoken of literally as that thing it refers to. We do this all the time. Now, after pandemic, I have to tell you, I've, I've done more weddings than I've ever done in my life. People just all wanted to get married after pandemic. It's, it's like a, a spring or something. Spring, yeah, anyways, I'll, I'll stop there um, before I go any farther. So yeah, and so I've noticed this when I'm doing, uh, people do their vows, and then they say this, and they repeat, and they say, with this ring I thee wed, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. So saying, with this ring I thee wed. The ring is like the one that does the wedding. And this is, as I said, after they do their formal vows. So formal vows, by the way, if you're ever confused, that's what makes somebody married. Because a marriage is a marriage covenant. So when you do, you know, I, the I do vows, be your loving and faithful husband and plenty and want and joy and sorrow, all those, those are the vows that people say that make them married. That's what makes a person married because a marriage is a marriage covenant and a covenant is a vow that you make together with your wife or your husband. But you notice, so this part happens after the people have already made their vows. So they're saying, you know, with this ring, I thee wed, and they put it on their finger and everything. No one has come to me afterwards and said, you know what, Nate, you're lying. Because it's not really the, the, the ring that weds them. It's the vows they made. So you're, you're lying, people, when you say it's the ring that makes them together. No, I'm not lying. I'm using that representational language. I am saying that this represents their marriage commitment. It represents them in that marriage covenant. It, it, it's a representational thing. When, uh, we use this so much uh, in, in, our, in our culture, this kind of language. We don't even, we don't even like, uh, think about it at all. It's, it's, so, it's so common. Um, when I'm at somebody's house uh, at church and my wife's trying to wrangle the kids to bed, Sometimes it can get up to 8.30 or 9.30. It gets pretty dicey there. We know how all that goes, right? And, you know, my wife will want me to help with the kids. And I'm like, maybe I'm with a congregant or working or doing something. And I'm like, well, I, don't, I might be able to stay in 30 minutes. Let me call home. No one thinks I'm literally calling a home. I'm referring to my wife when I say, let me call home. Because my wife is a homemaker, and so the house is like a representation of my wife in that sense. It points to my wife. And so I say, let me call home. Oh, you're not really calling home, Nate. You're lying. You know, you're calling your wife. No one says that because we know how we use this kind of language all the time. You watch action films, something bad happens, you know, like a nuke goes off or something, or a war. Uh, we got to call Washington. That means we're calling the president. We don't think you're literally calling Washington or George Washington or the state of you know, Washington, D.C. And so we use this all the time. And so, yeah, like, well, you know, Nate, that's a really convenient reading of uh, Romans 6 and 1 Peter to say that's how it's talking. How do you know the Bible is using that type of sacramental representational? How do you know that, Nate? Well... I know that because this is not just used in modern language. This is used in the biblical times. They use this type of language all the time. All the time. Look at Leviticus 4.20-21. through 21. 
Just read this literally here. Think of this literally here now. Thus shall he do with the bull. This is a sacrifice, his animal sacrifices they did in the Old Testament. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this, and the priest shall make an atonement for them. They shall be forgiven. It says right there, Nate, if, you, if you're reading it black and white, straightforward, it's saying the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, it seems to be saying that if you did them, they atoned and they forgave your sins. But the problem is, we know that the Bible explicitly denies that. It says it, that's not the case. Hebrews 10, 4 through 6, it says, For it is impossible... Not even possible. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sin offering, you have taken no pleasure. So, yeah, here it's, it's saying, yeah, blood of bulls and goats doesn't atone anything, doesn't forgive anybody's sins. And so what I'm saying here is that for the very same reason that Peter and Paul say baptism buries you in Jesus and saves you, that's, that's what the same language is being used here in Leviticus. It's using representational language. The Bible uses it all the time. It says in like 1 Corinthians 11, no, it's not that. It's 1 Corinthians 10. Excuse me, I got the wrong chapter. Look it up, right? Um, it says that the, the, the rock is Christ that you know, led the Israelites with spilling out water and, and giving them nourishment. Well, no one literally thinks Christ is a rock, okay? But it says the, the rock is Christ. You're not going to think Jesus is a rock, okay? What, what that means is that Jesus, the rock represents Jesus, that's what that means. Circumcision is called the covenant. But we know it is, it's not the covenant at all in the Old Testament, but rather it points to the promise that God made with Abraham. The Ten Commandments are called the covenant with Moses. Yet we know that's not the covenant with, with, that was made with God and Moses. The people made an oath to God as people make an oath in a marriage. So my point is, is this representational language is used so much in the Bible, I can give you examples all day in real life, modern life, and in biblical times of how this language is used. And so when we speak about baptism, that's how we're using it. You say, well, how do we know? Because it says faith saves you. How do you know that's not being used of faith? In other words... Why, why am I saying baptism doesn't save you, but, but I don't apply the same logic to faith? Faith being like a representation. How do I know that it's actually when we believe in Jesus, we get saved? And the reason why we know that is we have examples in the Bible where people are not baptized, but they're saved by faith. And we have examples where people are baptized and they're not saved. So if you're asking yourself, well, how are people being saved? The obvious answer is faith, because you can be saved by faith without baptism. But if you don't have faith and this person gets baptized, they are not saved. Let me give you an example of this. This is the immoral woman coming to Christ. And of course, you think of the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross was not baptized. Hard to get baptized on a cross, isn't it? So yeah, he was not baptized. Yet Jesus says, you'll be with me today in paradise. But the immoral woman also is a good example of this in Luke 7, 47 through 50. She's not baptized, and yet it says her faith has saved her. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, she's, she's an immoral woman. She's struggled all of her life, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Notice, he says specifically, it's her faith that saved her. Not working, getting baptized. So yeah, it is through faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, that we are saved. And this is, this is the gospel message. And Paul denies that baptism is a part of the gospel message in 1 Corinthians. Baptism is not the gospel, but it points to the gospel. And you see this in Acts 8 when Simon the sorcerer, this guy is really, he's a shady guy. He's someone that wants to make money off of, of, of Jesus. He wants to have the power of the Holy Spirit and get cash, basically. He is, um, he is a, a modern-day scam artist. And so he's, as a scam artist, he's baptized. And Peter calls him out after, just after he's been baptized. says, you know what? You're not a believer. This is what he says in Acts 18 or 8, 18 to 23. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying of apostles hands, he offered them money. He's all about the cash. He wants to get, you know, power and recognition. Give me this power also so that anyone in whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Come on, give me some. I, I want some of this. I want some of this power here. But Peter said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You read on earlier, he was already baptized. You neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness of yours and pray if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you were in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Doesn't sound like a believer there, does it? Sounds like an unbeliever. And so this person who's been baptized, it didn't do anything because he didn't have true saving faith in Jesus Christ. So the baptism was just doesn't, didn't have any effect. And so, yeah, people can be saved without baptism, but you can be baptized and, of course, not be saved. This is exactly how circumcision functioned in the Old Testament. It had the same function as baptism, is that people received circumcision and they didn't necessarily have true faith. But yet, circumcision, like baptism, is called a sign of faith. Look at Romans 4.11. It says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still yet uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So he received the sign of circumcision. It says it as a sign of faith. Now what's interesting is that this sign of faith was also applied uh, in, it was, it was, it's replaced by baptism as we'll see. But this sign of circumcision, which is a sign of faith that was applied to infants in the Old Covenant. And so these infants grew up in time and many of them, some of them rejected God. Just like a person can be baptized and they can later on reject God. So baptism does not save you. Faith does. Circumcision does not save you. Faith in Jesus Christ does. And so Baptism is replaced by circumcision. It has the same function as it. It's a symbol that points to a person's faith. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, a spiritual circumcision, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we have the spiritual circumcision having been buried with him in baptism. We have it now. We possess it now. It's replaced now by baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So yeah, 
You, it's a, it, baptism replaces circumcision. It functions the same way. Circumcision didn't save anybody by itself. Baptism doesn't do anything in and of itself. You can be saved without those things, but usually it follows in the Christian life. And so this is why Paul assumed as a first century Jew, he assumes everybody in the church is going to receive, you know, like they received the old covenant sign of circumcision. He's going to assume everybody in the church is going to receive the new covenant sign of baptism. And if you look through the book of Acts, I mean, it's, this is really incredible to see because, I mean, I wish in many ways a lot of churches would be faster at baptizing people because, man, book of Acts, people believe and boom, they're baptized. It's, it's incredible if you read Acts, say, 28 through 41. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children, and for all who are far off, every one with whom the Lord God calls himself. And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That day they were baptized. There was no delay. They didn't have to like memorize, you know, a catechism or all this theology. As soon as they heard the gospel, boom, they were baptized. There was no delay. It happened right away. And this shows us it is not for mature Christians, but it's for all Christians. Peter didn't do an examination. Oh, wait, stop. Wait, I don't know if I can baptize you. I gotta, we got to test you. We've got to put you through like a theological exam, you know, multiple choice maybe. You know, you have to be a theologian. To get baptized. You got to be a professor somewhere. You got to have all this. You got to read through the Bible 10 times, then we'll baptize you. See, the first, the first century Christians, they didn't operate that way. And normally people would be baptized first and then they would take communion. So the modern practice of taking communion for 15 years, 10 years, and never being baptized is foreign to first century Christianity. And we as Bible-believing Christians, we want to we follow the practices of the original apostles. We want to follow what the first century Christians did to the best of our ability in hearing what the Word of God has to say. Another example, very stark, is the Ethiopian eunuch in uh, Acts 8, 35-38. It's amazing. Philip just goes right up to this guy. And, and the guy's reading through Isaiah and he talks to him a bit. And then, boom, they get baptized right away. Like, incredibly fast. Like, and this guy brings it up, too. He's like, oh, are you going to baptize me or what? You know, this is an incredible example here. Then Philip opened his mouth. And the beginning of, with, this, with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Gives him the gospel right there. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? This guy's, he's, this guy's intense. This guy wants to go all in here. <laughs> you know. And he commanded the chariots to stop. And they w both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. So this guy is like, yeah, this is a pattern that you see all throughout the book of Acts over and over and over again. If you were not previously baptized and the people believed, immediately there was baptism. Now this, this last one, I want to close on this one here, this example. But this one's the Philippian jailer. And this one is really stark. I mean, this guy makes a, quite a transition here. He goes from, in one day, this shows you the kind of the ups and downs of this guy, goes from almost killing himself to getting baptized in one day. And Paul's not like, oh, I don't know, I don't trust you because you just tried to kill yourself. You know, no, this is, this is a quite a up and down and all around kind of experience here. And he, this is when Paul gets released from the prison by the power of God. But in verse 28, Acts 16, 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. 
for we are all here. So he's trying to kill himself because if you let a prisoner go and you were a Roman, you're going to die. So he was like going to give suicidal. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought him at them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. See, simple gospel proclamation. Very simple. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were with him in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and all his, at once. He and all his family baptized at once. So suicide attempt to baptism in one day. That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast right there. That is like 180 transition. And he's not like, well, you know, you just try to commit suicide. We need to have a few days of purification to really show how holy. you got to really prove yourself. No, the guy believed and boom, that guy was baptized right away. So baptism represents one's faith in Christ. And so if you have faith in Christ and not previously baptized, the next logical step would then be to get baptized. Now, people get worried, okay, you know, was I, you know, do I need to get baptized again, Nate? Was I baptized the right way, you know? And they, they have this because of the meaning of baptism in Romans 6 and other things. You know, people, they'll ask me, oh, you know, well, okay, the, the water was poured on my head. Does that count? Or, you know, I'm a little worried. Maybe my pinky or a hair follicle is up. You never know. I really, you know, can we really get deep in the waters this time to really make sure? Do I need to get baptized again? And again, this comes up because people will say the Greek word baptism always means complete full immersion of the human body. And so they would say, yeah. And so Paul here in Romans 6 describes this being buried and raised again kind of motif. And so you got to be buried down in that water. Don't have a pinky up. Don't have anything up. If your little thing gets up, it doesn't count. It's like, oh, your baptism's void now. You know, we got to do it again and do it the right way. And so is that true? And no, the Bible does not teach that every inch of your body needs to be covered in water and liquid. No, that's not the case. And in fact, the Greek word baptism is used in the New Testament to not mean a full covering of your whole body with water. An example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, I've cited this earlier about Christ and the rock. You're going to see that here. It's glad I made that change from 11 to 10. You don't want a pastor messing up on what, what chapter it's on, right? So here in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, For I want you to be, not to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. He's talking about the Israelites passing the Red Sea. And Moses, if you read through Exodus or watch Prince of Egypt, you know, the parting of the Red Sea. Or if you're older, I guess the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments. There we go. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. So they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they drank all the spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So he's talking about these Israelite families. By the way, how much do you think, how many Israelites do you think was walking through the Red Sea? A hundred, two hundred. Actually, modern estimates are more than half a million, which is a lot of people. So there's whole families of Israelites passing through. This, the land was dry and the sea was parted. And you have women and men and children of all ages getting this, this baptism by Moses. And they're not swimming across the Red Sea. 
So, and they, I mean, you're going through too large body of water, you know, you're going to get a little wet. You're going to get some sprinkles on you. You're going to get some, you're going to get some water on you from, you know, you're just imagine like these huge, these huge walls of water. You're going to, there's, you're going to get a little wet. I mean, they're going to get some wet and yet, but they're not going to be like, they're not swimming in water or anything like that. That's not happening. And so they're not fully immersed, but yet they are getting, you know, bits of water from these two massive bodies of water. And so this is still a baptism, even though they're not every part of their body is being covered in, in water. And Paul still calls this a baptism. So if your pinky was up or a hair follicle might have been popping up, it still counts. We don't have to do it again. You're good to go. And that still counts as baptism. Now, some would say, and I have a friend who says this, that, that you look at Romans 6 and 8, you know, it's like you're, you're buried with Christ and you come up. You've got to do this. It, the movement's got to be like this, you know, buried down. We all know I'm good at that. Buried down and coming back up. It's got to be that kind of movement. You know, you've got to get the whole thing going because that's what Romans 6 says, Nate. And the, the thing is, is Paul is not prescribing movements for baptism here. Like, we're going to put you down in the tomb and now you're coming back up down in the tomb and you're coming back. It's not prescribing movements here. And we know that because Paul says other things about our union with Jesus Christ by faith. He says things like we're, like we're in the heavenlies with Christ right now. So, I mean, I guess if you really want to be literal, you could baptize someone, bring them up, and they move up to Suncrest or they follow Elon Musk and go up on a rocket ship or something? I don't know. So you can't follow all these physical movements. These are just to express that we're united with Christ through faith, and God views us in the life of Christ, since we're so united to Him, and views us as the same as Jesus, because we're given His work by faith. We're given His righteousness. And so... This is from Ephesians 2, 5. You tend to see this union. It doesn't require that you have any particular bodily movements or like you have to go up on Suncrest or something, live up there. Uh, Ephesians 2, 5 through 10. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and here's the part, and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Incredible. That's how God views you, is already seated with Jesus by being united to him, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, yeah, this doesn't require you to take, you know, get to know Elon Musk and go up and, you know, really high up in outer space or anything like that. No, this is not requiring any kind of bodily movement. This is saying that it is guaranteed that you are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. You are united to Jesus by faith. And you, you might as well be in heaven. That's, that's how certain your salvation is this morning is. You might as well be in heaven with Jesus. That, that's how sure you are. So if you were to die today... You will go to heaven and you have certainty of that as someone who has faith in Jesus. You're, you're already up. God already views you in the life of Jesus. He already views you through his death and resurrection. You might as well as already be resurrected. That's a certainty of salvation you have. So you never need to fear. You never need to worry that your salvation is stable in Christ. God would never forsake you or leave you or abandon you because when you have faith in Jesus, you're united to Jesus Christ, his son. And just like he would never abandon Jesus, so he he would never abandon you by faith in him. And so that's, a, that's amazing, comforting news that God views us through the, through the prism, through the lens of his son and that he gives us this immeasurable and just amazing grace.
And if you want to receive that grace this morning, or if you already have, you believe in Christ, and you want to take that next step and get baptized, you talk to me, talk to Johnny. We have sign-ups in the back. You can write in the back of your visitor card. Um, and we have a next steps class as well where you can, you can get baptized here. As you can tell from the New Testament we've read this morning, there's no reason to delay any, anything at all with baptism. It, it seems like an urgent thing, you know. I would imagine that a, a husband that delayed putting on his wedding ring might, might be sleeping on the couch. It wouldn't <laughs> Don't take that analogy too far, okay? But yeah, I mean, we, we wanna, people want to show and express their love for Christ. It's something that Christians want to do. And so if you, do, if, if you are feeling led to do that, please talk to me. Um, I would love to baptize you. And someone, someone can help, obviously, if you, if you feel called to that as well. So let's pray and ask for God's grace to, and His mercy to overflow in our hearts.